Welcome to the second of this uh, series of lectures on natural capital. Uh, in the first lecture, I spelt out what that concept means and in particular uh, why an assets-based approach is distinct from a classic ecosystems type approach. Getting the concept right is utterly crucial. If you don't get the question right, then the answer is pretty hard to establish. But we know what the question is now. And so how do we put in place a set of metrics to work out whether we are looking after our natural capital and especially our renewable natural capital? And how do we translate that into the nuts and bolts of measurement uh, and so on? And re remember that if you can't measure something, if you can't put numbers on things, then actually there's a real risk that people assume that the value is in effect zero. And what we're trying to do here is not just stop the decline of natural capital, but we're trying to enhance nat natural capital. And indeed, that's the explicit objective of the 25-year environment plan. So what about the metrics? Well, uh, what you measure is what counts and what counts is where the money flows. Uh, and uh, it's unsurprising that what's going on in the natural capital world is every lobby group invested interest is finding a set of metrics which produce the answer, which is what they want to do anyway, is the best thing to do. And therefore, they should have the money spent upon it. You only have to look at the debates about uh, the money and the subsidies post the common agricultural policy and you'll rapidly discover that uh, if, for example, you represent mainstream farmers, what you'll be interested in is redefining food production uh, and food security as public goods and then drawing up a set of metrics which ends up with a case for subsidies which looks pretty like the current system. No criticism? That's exactly what a vested interest organisation should do, and that's what it does. Uh, but we want to get the answer right. We're interested not in just the interests of existing well-organised groups now, but we're interested in actually the natural environment that we bequeath to the next generation. So how do we take the concept of natural capital and turn it into a, a set of measurable metrics? Well, recall that from the first lecture, what we're really interested in is renewable natural capital. That's uh, natural capital which will go on being provided free by nature forever, provided we don't uh, over exploit it. And so the first thing to do is to take a scientific approach to metrics and ask, is the stock of any of these bits of natural capital anywhere close to the threshold below which it will become uh, unsupportable in the future and therefore effectively default to a non-renewable natural capital asset. So that's the first big challenge and um, we need to think quite carefully about what that threshold is and uh, how we establish it. So for example, if we were to take example from the first lecture again, looking at herrings, we would ask ourselves, what is the minimum amount of herring 
that there can be in the North Sea and so on, which would be capable of reproducing itself forever. Or put another way, how low could that threshold go, how, how low could that stock go to a threshold when we seriously risk it becoming uh, non-renewable and on the path to extinction? So the first thing to look at is that threshold. The second thing to look at is the safe limits around that threshold. How much risk can we take? We don't know exactly what the uh, minimum stock of herring is to maintain itself in perpetuity, so we need a margin. How do we measure that margin? How do we estimate it? And then, of course, there's no reason why we want to be at the threshold. It may be worthwhile having a much higher stock, and that comes down to the benefits. So there's a very simple uh, diagrammatic way of looking at this. Start with the threshold, add the safe limits, and then think about the benefits above the safe limits that are in place. So that's where we start. And now we have to unpack behind each of those what's at stake. It's pretty obvious that uh, we need to be clear what the units are against which the threshold safe limits and, and benefits are assessed. Are we measuring something not easy but fairly well defined like say the stock of a particular species like herring or are we are looking at a unit which is the ecosystem within which they function so for example uh, are we looking at the north seas ecological system uh, and the conditions that that unit that ecosystem has to be in within which the herring stock and lots of other stocks can be uh, uh, supported and beyond that ecosystem in the North Sea, are we really looking about the whole uh, North Atlantic system, the flows into the uh, North Sea from the Thames, the Rhine, and other sources of pollution, uh, uh, and so on and so forth? Are we using a bigger unit, in other words? Or do we go all the way when we get to things like climate change and think about the global planetary environmental systems of the unit? And if you think about extinction, which is the end product of taking renewables below their threshold, the causes of, this, of extinction are multiple. It's not simply usually just a uh, simple and easy uh, reason or causal chain, for example, shooting the great orcs uh, to the point of extinguishing the last two in Iceland uh, in the last century. That's pretty straightforward. But obviously, uh, if we're thinking about more complicated cases like what's happened to European eels, uh, it is, of course, a bit about hunters taking too many, but it's also about the state of our rivers. It's all also about the uh, uh, Gulf Stream and the way it flows. It's also about um, uh, the state of the seas uh, nearby uh, and so on and so forth. It's multiple and complex. And and one reaction to this complexity is to sort of give up, to say, well, we can't really establish where the thresholds are. All we should do is focus on these big units, like the whole of the natural environment, or in the climate change world, the whole of the world's climate, and give up on the detail. That is seductive, 
It appeals to those people who don't like measurement, and especially those people who naively think that bits of natural capital are beyond valuation. Uh, uh, it has an appeal, but it doesn't really get us very far. So what we have to accept is that the reasons for extinction, the reasons for things getting uh, below the threshold are, of course, multiple. And therefore, we have to have multiple metrics to address the problem. So back to my simple example of herrings, we need all those different units to be taken into account. And we need to think about strategies to address each of those units, recognising that they'll differ in importance in case to case. So in the herring example, the most obvious thing is just fishing. And we should really have a catch policy for dealing with that and a fisheries management policy. And we do. It just may not be good enough. But for a whole series of other things, uh, for example, uh, another case is oysters in the North Sea. Used to be covered in the things. Indeed, the North Sea used to be much clearer uh, than it is today because the oysters filtered the waters. Well, to get that situation back requires a much bigger unit to be taken into account, which is essentially incorporating the big rivers, the agricultural runoff of the pollutions, the fertilizers and so on, and the phosphates and all the eutrophication effects that follow from that. So in each case, we need to have multiple units and we need to focus on each of them and do a pragmatic assessment of what's necessary to keep those non-renewables above the uh, sustainable thresholds. That's the first bit. But recall the next bit is safe limits. We simply don't want to take the risk by just getting those extra few herrings into the shops um, or into their little uh, bottles of roll mops. Uh, we want to give some margin. And risk assessment is again, uh, in large measure, scientific. So we can look, for example, again in my herrings example, uh, case, of fluctuations in herring population, which occur for a whole variety of climatic and other reasons. What happens if at the limits of those fluctuations, um, the population is then confronted with uh, challenges to sustain itself? If it goes, we look back, what was the lowest it went to? What, how risky was that? That's a question of science. And again, we apply the units. So all this environmental science, all this ecological science, all this biology, indeed all this genetics, is relevant to those two bits. That's where the science fits into natural capital across the range of units. And the safe limits and the... Um, uh, thresholds are in that framework. Now, what's the unit of account when we translate from the science to the capital, the asset bit? Well, what we're really saying in trying to keep to above the safe limits for renewable uh, natural capital is we're saying that there must be sufficient maintenance spend to achieve that outcome. Put in accounting terms, we have an asset in perpetuity, the herrings, and we need to work out what is the cost and what has to be done to maintain that threshold. Now, in some cases, nothing much except, for example, limiting the amount of fishing that takes place. 
But in lots of other cases of managed natural capital, we have to do positive things to manage the assets so they carry on sustaining themselves. Recall, there really isn't anything pristine and wilderness left in our world. And if you look at a country like uh, uh, Britain, nearly all or all of its landscapes and all of its ecological systems are the product of uh, man's intervention over thousands of years. You know, in the um, wildest dreams of some of these people who think that the job of uh, environmental policy is just to rewild everything, trying to reconstruct what the natural environment looked like 10,000 or 8,000 years ago, back to uh, the emergence from the previous uh, cold periods and ice, etc., or trying to envisage what would happen if you walked away from the natural environment, these kind of exercises don't really get us very far and indeed almost always violate some of the thresholds and the safe limits. Clearly a largely wooded Britain would not be a good habitat for a number of species which rely upon the open landscapes we've created uh, as but one example. So most of these natural habitats, most of these environments, most of these species need active management to keep to the thresholds and safe limits. That requires capital maintenance to maintain the value of these natural capital assets intact through time, and that requires estimation. And translated into proper accounting terms, you simply take that uh, requirement of cost and charge it to uh, the operating returns of whoever's running the assets in order that the balance sheet asset remains intact through time. So for example, on a farm where one has a natural asset that needs to be sustained, supposing it's a, a ecological system of corridors, supposing it's wildflower meadows, supposing it's hedges, uh, trees, etc., then you work out how much it costs to make sure that you don't depreciate those assets, you don't do damage to those assets, you deduct that from the revenue line of the farm and then the balance sheet value of the natural capital remains constant through time. It's something I'm going to come back to uh, subsequently in, in, uh, in some of these lectures, but that link to the accounting side is automatic. Science determines the thresholds, science determines the safe limits, uh, accounting and economics determine how the costs are integrated into accounting in order those assets are maintained intact. So that is the issue of uh, the science, and that's how the accounting side uh, from those safe limits and from those uh, thresholds uh, comes together in the set of scientific metrics for all the different levels of units and the accounts. But it would be an odd world in which all we wanted to do was just make sure we don't drive more things extinct and destroy more habitats it's pretty obvious that we've done a huge amount of damage in the last especially 200 years or so and that if we want to leave the natural environment in a better state for our future generations a good reason for doing that is we'll be better off well clear of the thresholds for many if not most of these natural capital assets we don't want a world in which we spend our time worrying about every species like we worry about extinguishing the tigers and have to go to enormous lengths just to hang on to the last vestiges of these populations. We want a healthy, vibrant, uh, 
uh, and enormously beneficial economically, health terms, welfare terms, education terms, and in just our quality of life, we want something much more vibrant. So now the next metric question, and if you like, it's the third one after threshold safe limits, is so how much should we be above the safe limits? What are, and in particular, what enhancements should we make to get these stocks to be bigger? To make sure we really have quite a big stock of herring, for example, but also a big stock of a whole range of species and therefore a big stock of the supporting uh, natural capital assets and ecosystems, habitats and so on. Now the conventional way in which this problem is approached, and it's the way it goes through the Treasury and the Green Book of accounting for these kinds of projects, is to use cost-benefit analysis. And in the next lecture, I'm going to spend some time on the strengths and weaknesses of cost-benefit analysis. But it's here worth just uh, making a few uh, mental notes of what's happening here. Recall I said that there are multiple units. Well, multiple units apply to the enhancements as well as to the thresholds and the safe limits. So which unit is it that you want to enhance to get this better uh, set of natural capital assets and therefore the better economic benefits that flow? Is it the herring population? Is that the one we ought to look at? And should we do a cost-benefit analysis of an, ex an extra um, million herrings, for example? Or is it the North Sea? Or is it the wider climate? Which of these levels of units should we look at? Now, the reason this is particularly pertinent for cost-benefit analysis is that cost-benefit analysis is really only good at answering in respect of one type of unit. The unit it's good at answering is thinking about a discrete and separable uh, project, which is sufficiently small and separate and marginal that it doesn't affect the whole. In other words, cost-benefit analysis looks at a whole series of environmental projects, improving this particular uh, wildlife reserve, creating this particular piece of wetland, uh, increasing the stock of a particular fish by a certain amount. But it doesn't ask the question, what is the overall ecosystems we want uh, to support these assets? Because these ecosystems are non-marginal. And so when we come much later in the le lecture series to some of the really big opportunities out there, things like creating living landscapes, creating large wildlife corridors are designed precisely not as marginal projects, but to make a difference to the whole ecological system or systems that we have in place. And cost-benefit analysis doesn't get us very far. The next thing to bear in mind here is, and it's true of all the other units, the thresholds and the safe limits too, is to think about the information that we have. So what is the basis of assessment in order to put metrics in place? And if you recall from the first lecture, I distinguished very clearly between looking at utility and the pleasure or happiness or preference satisfaction to individuals as against to capabilities and the ability of assets to be in place for people in the future to be able to exercise choices. Now, the distinction between these two 
is that in the utility case, the answer to what kind of enhancements we should have is basically to have those enhancements that yield the maximum utility and therefore those enhancements that people say they want and people say they're going to enjoy. So we go out and ask people, how much are you willing to pay to do certain things? How much do you need to be compensated to accept the loss of something else? How much do you spend uh, on capital items to benefit from a, a nice environmental view? These are sort of questions we ask, and it doesn't take much imagination to realize that the degree of ignorance that all of us share, you and I and the bulk of the population, about how ecosystems work, how things fit together, and indeed our ignorance about even the existence of much of the biodiversity of our world, that those things are pretty hard to just simply ask people what they want and assume the answer is actually what they really want, if they were fully informed. After all, I've got students who don't really know what a swallow is because they probably haven't seen one. And if you haven't seen one, you don't know about it, you have no idea how swallows fit into an ecosystem. And much more scary is the fact that most of the biodiversity that matters is the stuff we can't see below the ground and of course, asking people what their preferences are over different kinds of worms or ants or invertebrates is a hopeless task. So we have to be very careful about what units we're using of measurement in order to work out what enhancements we should have. And over the course of the uh, lectures, I'll identify a number of ways to think about that. And in the next lecture, I'm gonna hone down very narrowly on cost-benefit analysis itself because although I've stressed in this lecture some of the limitations of these techniques, they are nevertheless very powerful, they are in the Green Book, they are widely used, and all uh, those who care about natural capital and care about the environment should understand how cost-benefit analysis works, its strengths and its weaknesses, so that you know what to do when the units are measured in the cost-benefit analysis framework and people come up with monetizations of natural capital assets. You'll detect I have some scepticism here. In the next lecture, I'll explain both why cost-benefit analysis is a very powerful tool, but I'll also explain why it's limited too. Thank you very much.